Hi there, this is How to Choose, the show that helps you make better decisions and improve your judgment. Thanks for joining us. I'm Tessa. And I'm Ken. In this, our second season of How to Choose, we're exploring the topic of decisions at work. And in this season, we're joined by a range of guests who speak about decision-making in the context of their work. Do you consider yourself a creative person, Ken? Well, that's a good question. I, I actually, my brother is a is an artist. I am not an artist, uh, but I do have creative impulses that I like to indulge every now and again, although not always with the kind of skill that makes the world a more beautiful place. <laughs> but I, yeah, I do enjoy creativity. And I think of the podcast really uh, as my creative outlook, I guess, at the moment. Yes. And I also want to bring up the fact that you are a woodworker. I have many of the items you've made for me, and I would say they are definitely making the world a more beautiful place, Ken. It's very generous of you. (laughs) But I'm a big believer that creativity is a muscle that you need to work out in order to get better. So hopefully our podcast is getting better uh, each episode, each season. But today we're talking to a professional artist. She's a multidisciplinary artist based in New York, Kira Cheers. She's gone from Hayman Island wedding photographer to artist in residence at Mad Gene Media, which is founded by Oscar Isaac and Elvira Lind. Well, here how she ignored expectations and chose to follow her intuition to become a professional photographer and how she's followed her intuition to get her to where she is now. Her success is no surprise to her or anyone who knows her. It was always going to happen. Oh, look, I'm excited by this. And I have to say, I'm a bit of a fan of Oscar Isaac. Ever since I saw and heard him, he's a great singer as well as a great actor. I saw him in Inside Lewin Davis, which is a Coen Brothers film, which I highly recommend. I haven't seen that one. Yeah, it's really worth a look. Uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing from Kira. This is going to be great. So you may hear a weird background sound at the start. That is actually my one-year-old. She kept trying to come over, um, so my partner had to whisk her upstairs so she didn't uh, take over the interview. Kira Cheers is a New York-based multidisciplinary artist whose work explores women's issues, uh, amongst many other things. Uh, she's won awards, published a book, written and produced, written, produced and directed a stage show. She's gone viral and she's an artist-in-residence with Mad Gene Media, Oscar Isaacs and Elvira Lynn's production company. Now, full disclosure for everyone, in case you're wondering at our um, dynamic later on, I have known Kira since she was literally in pigtails when we were, were we 10 years old? I was trying to remember how old we were. Well, it was grade four. Yeah, grade four. So we might have been nine. It's a long time. It is a really long time. It's well over 20 years of friendship. Yeah, exactly. Um, And that's also one of the reasons I really wanted to have you on because I've seen you transform so many times. You're a really determined and talented person, uh, which is an excellent combination because you do succeed in pretty much anything that you try. I remember back in primary school, you're that kid who was uh, always running from one activity to the next. Very, very busy. Um, It was sport, cello, singing. And then in high school, you continued with the music specialty, but also added in surf lifesaving and then eventually photography. Have I missed anything in your... um, your very busy childhood? No, I think that was just a really nice way of saying that I was just an obnoxious overachiever. (laughs) (laughs) My poor parents. Obnoxious doesn't have to go with overachieving, but definitely an overachiever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I had a teacher um, once describe me as being overbearing in in my report card. So, you know, he might've been on the money. Yeah. No, look, it's it's passion, I think, can sometimes be overbearing. It's just it's kind of part of it that if you um if you want to pursue something with vigor, it can sometimes be a bit intense for others 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think as a creative, like passion doesn't even cut it. Like it has to be border on obsession to be able to make it in the industry. Yeah. And that's something that I really want to dissect because you and I have kind of similar experiences, I think, in high school where we both academic and creative pursuits and we both did really well in the creative side. Um, And I deliberately remember thinking that that was not a career that I think that I would be successful in. And I decided to go for a more practical, at the time, journalism, which was (laughs) also probably an even as hard industry. But what made you decide to pursue photography? Like what was, you know, over, say, doing medicine, which you would have been able to get into? Yeah, it's a really good question. I did do really well at high school and I won a couple of national awards at the time. And I had like a few universities kind of like reach out and try to like poach me and get me to to study with them. But I ultimately decided to go to TAFE to study uh, an advanced diploma in commercial photography, which was a, a surprising choice, I think, to a lot of people. But I felt that the program offered a more like practical application of the profession. And my priority was really to become a working photographer. Like I didn't want to be a photographer who worked at a cafe on the side. Like I wanted to make money doing what I loved. I think that I also have to give my mother credit for this decision-making process. She always encouraged me to just pursue the things that I was interested in. So I think it's like really tough. Like you're in high school, you're like 17 and they're asking you to make these decisions about the rest of your life when you don't really even know who you are. And my mother, who was a teacher, also thought that was pretty ridiculous. We never really overthought my subject choices or anything like that. I just did the things that I, I liked and I was good at and I was interested in. Um, and then my father was a, is a really dream big kind of person. And I actually never questioned that I was going to be successful. And I get nervous for myself. Like I look back on like my younger self and I'm like, oh my God, it's terrifying to look back on it, but I never even considered that it wouldn't work out. I was just like, this is what I'm doing and I'm just going to make it work. And I think what you said earlier connects with that, that to be successful in the creative side of things, it's not just passion, it's obsession. And you have to have that that confidence and that attitude. Of course, this is going to work. This is my path. And that's, all, that's always um, how I felt about it. What did your 17-year-old self see as success? Like what were you, what was your dream of like, yes, one day I might be able to do this? You know, when I graduated uh, TAFE, so a little bit older, around uh, 1920, we had like our final exhibition with our graduating year and and you had to write like a, like a paragraph about what you wanted to do with your career and your future. And everyone had written these like really long-winded explanations of what they wanted to do. And I said that, I wanted to move to Paris and be a fashion photographer. It was just like one sentence. I remember my brother thought that was so hilarious. You know, I didn't move to Paris. I think that could still be in the cards. And that's definitely something I'm looking at, starting like trying to find a base in Europe and bouncing back and forth between New York and Paris. Um, But I did move to New York and I have shot for brands like Gucci and more recently, Tom Brown, John Hardy, Rachel Zoe. So, yeah, I, I think that I always had a pretty clear vision of, of what I wanted to do. If I had to define success, this is a very unsexy answer to that question, but for me, it's always been financial. Mm. So a lot of people can make art, and I, I think that's amazing, but for me, I wanted to earn a living from my art. 
And I've found different ways to do that. You know, I, I shoot uh, really high-end weddings on the side, which I don't always love, but they pay my bills and allow me to do my art. And I'm really hoping over the next couple of years I can transition out of wedding photography and um, just be full-time in my art practice. And I, I think we've had this conversation before about the struggle um, as an artist of trying to pursue the things that you really want to do versus actually you've got to pay for your camera and you've got to pay for your rent. And so there's this like weird pull of like the practical and the really kind of more ephemeral, you know, inner desires. I think it's hard for any artist, which is why a lot of people don't pursue it full time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I there's been different times when I've really like resented the wedding photography, but and I think I'm at a place, I have a and I have an agent now who, who books all my work for me and does all the editing. So I just have to turn up and shoot. I am kind of grateful for what they've given my life. You know, that it was wedding photography that got me to New York. It's wedding photography that's paid my bills for the last 10 years. Um, and, and it allowed me plenty of time to work on the things I really am passionate about and kind of build that side of my career. And I think I'm almost ready to, to leapfrog um, over to uh, my art career full-time. I'm very excited for that next step. I always think of you as both a traveller and an artist. And how much, I guess, is your your keenness to be sort of a nomad or to be free and flexible a part of your drive to do, you know, creative things and create own your own businesses and things like that rather than work for someone else? Yeah, for sure. You know, I do like to be free and flexible, but I would say that every move or every career development has been very intentional so like I do like to plan out my next move I am very ambitious even the the move to New York uh, was really like serendipitous with the way it happened you know like I'd kind of already manifested that dream years ago with the um, wanting to move to another country and take my career to the next level there was only so far that I could take my career in Australia and I really needed to like move overseas if I wanted to move it in the direction that, you know, I, I wanted. So can you talk us through that decision-making process? So you're you're comfortable, you've got success wherever you are. What makes yeah. you decide to kind of throw it all overboard and, and go and do something really risky but the yeah. potential for more success? I have a decision-making process that I've been like very aware of uh, and I've used this throughout my entire career. This might be a little abstract because I am a creative, but I'm trying to make this clear. So I've always looked for clues or pieces to the puzzle. So let's presume that life is like a jigsaw puzzle, right? I live my life and then something happens and my intuition tells me that this is important. I don't know why, I don't know how it's going to be important, but um, my intuition tells me this is important. So I will acknowledge it. I'll put a pin in it. And then I'll move on with my life. And then life goes on and then something else happens and I'll identify another clue or piece to the puzzle. And then sometimes those pieces to the puzzle match up. And that's when I make a decision and I move forward in that direction. It's almost like when the pieces match up, the decision is made for me. To me, it seems very obvious that that's the direction I have to move forward um, in my life. I can give an example of that. I was in Byron Bay and I was running my own business and one of my favorite photographers who I'm not going to name because he's an asshole uh, he was one of the leading wedding portrait photographers in the world and had this like real photojournalistic approach that I really admired and I'd been following his career for many years Um, I moved into 
uh, a new house with a, another person who was a photographer. And uh, one night over dinner, we were talking about other photographers that we really we really liked. And I mentioned this photographer and uh, it's a small world. She said that one of her best friends that she used to ski with um, actually worked for the studio over in New York. And so I was like, oh, how interesting, you know, like that, that is a small world. And then um, a couple of months later, she told me that that friend was actually leaving the studio. And I decided that was, it was just, uh, there were two pieces to the puzzle. The fact that I had been, I wanted to move overseas. Uh, I wanted to take my work overseas. Uh, I had moved in to this, to this place and made this connection. And my favorite photographer was probably going to be in a position where they wanted to hire somebody else. So I reached out and uh, told them, um, I was talented and they should hire me because I was 23 and had all the confidence in the world and they agreed and I flew to New York, had the interview, got the job and then the rest is history. So um, for me, it wasn't it wasn't a difficult decision. It wasn't even really a decision. The The pieces of the puzzle had matched up and, that, and it was just obvious to me that that was going to be my next move. So interesting. Uh, we actually did an episode on intuition in decision making I don't know if you heard that one I I did and I thought it was really uh, fascinating and I, and I think an important part to this is how I define intuition so I am uh, I did the Myers-Briggs test uh, quite a few years ago and I've done it several times then since then and I always come out as an INTP and I score very very high for intuition very low for feelings um, but <laughs> <laughs> very high for intuition and I don't see intuition as being this like mystical, magical thing. For me, I think about it like intuition is my subconscious uh, computer that's receiving like all this information and then and kind of like reporting back to me based off of all this information that it's that it's received. I think that's a really neat way of describing it. Because I think a lot of people do see it as this sort of magical thing that, you know, you have to somehow you just have. Intuition is so much about expertise. And I think in your situation, your expertise is almost your self-reflection and self-understanding and understanding Mm -hmm. of your own values and waiting for those inputs to kind of come out. And then your subconscious is going, no, actually, this deeply aligns with what I want from my life and my career. And whereas I think someone who isn't as clear on what their values are and what their underlining passion and and needs are might not necessarily be able to say yes and pick up their life and move countries on the outside as a whim or a you know a risky chance but I think when you do have that underlying really clear vision and drive and understanding of your own values it becomes much easier to make big decisions yeah absolutely that I mean there's obviously like times that I have self-doubt but making big decisions has always come pretty easily to me because of that and I and I think that yeah there is a a real strength in acknowledging like what your strengths are and for me I acknowledged that intuition was one of my strengths so I just learned to trust it and that serves you extremely well we're going to fast forward back to New York you have started your project called Tinderella and if no one's heard of it I suggest you google Kira Cheers and Tinderella and you'll get a background Uh, but this was your first kind of big solo New York project and it ended up going viral how did that feel and and again I'm interested in your decision making here how deliberate were you with this initial success or how much did you just go with the flow yeah it was a really 
crazy experience. I, I had founded a, a wedding photographer group called the Brooklyn Collective at the time, and it was really based off of this idea about we were wedding photographers, but we're also artists, and I, and I wanted us to explore this more artistic side to our professions. And so I, had an, um, I curated an exhibition on modern romance, and Tinderella was my take on modern romance. So remember this was 10 years ago. Online dating had just become a thing, at least in New York, but it hadn't really hit Australia yet. So I was incredibly nervous, but uh, but also excited. And I was really aware that it was like a big step in my career. So I had this group exhibition we had over 400 people come and it was really exciting and the project was really well received. And then I decided to release the project online through a website called Feature Shoot. So this was very intentional. So I had done my research and realized that Feature Shoot is kind of like a feeder site for so many other publications. So it's the type of site that other publications look to for their content. They're really just cheating. Like they, they let like feature shoot do kind of like all the hard work and then um, and then they kind of just like the articles that they think are worthy, they just kind of blow up. So I remember exactly where I was. I was um, back in Australia when I got the email saying that Tinderella had been accepted and they were really excited to publish it. And I thought, oh God, maybe this could be a, maybe this could be a big thing for me. I was traveling around Australia and I didn't have reception um, a lot of the time. And I woke up one morning and it had just gone viral all over the world overnight while I was sleeping. You know, like uh, New York Times profile, Huffington Post, Cosmopolitan magazine, like a bunch of um, newspapers in uh, Germany, in London, like hundreds of thousands of smaller blogs. And I completely lost control over the project. So Tinderella was supposed to be a social commentary about how we connect in a digital world, but everyone was still a little uncomfortable with online dating and and a little judgy, and I really didn't want it to become this like gossipy piece. I think the best example of this and the and the negative like kind of side of the the publicity was when the Sydney Morning Herald reached out to do a profile on me. And uh, it was the first time I was published in Australia and I was really excited because I felt like, oh, you know, now my friends and family are going to be going to see what I've been working so hard at over in New York. And the journalist called me and he's, I didn't like his line of questioning. It was really like, who was the best kisser, you know, like this and that. And I was like, actually, I don't feel comfortable answering these questions. I really don't think this is not what I thought the the project was really about. And I hung up the phone. I felt really good that I had made the right decision. You know, like I I wasn't going to sell out just for the publicity. I felt really confident in my choice. Anyway, the journalist called back. He said he wanted to have another go at the interview. We tried again. It was kind of the same bullshit. So I hung up. They ran the piece anyway with a quote that said, uh, American men open doors, Australian men open their zippers, which was like something I never said. And a huge picture of my face and this article that basically slut shamed me. And it was really difficult, actually. It was really upsetting. And I I felt like, you know, my country had turned on me in, in a weird way. And, and I was really upset. So 
although that the first part of the project, the release, that was very intentional. I wasn't set up at all to make the most of this experience of going viral. It was also like earlier in internet days, like I barely had social media at that time. You know, I really, it was a really amazing experience, but I don't feel like I was really able to capitalize on the exposure. Yeah, I remember it, that article and how how frustrating that was when you're like, no, you're misrepresenting you know, the mm. views that you actually put out. And I think that's the problem with any kind of art in particular is that you don't get to choose how people interpret or present it, that you don't have that control. I, I think it was a good learning curve though. Like you, you're exactly right. Like once you put something out into the world, I don't have control. I can do my best to represent it in the way that I want it to be seen. But, you know, everyone has different experiences with the work. Interested as well, just going back to, I guess, the intentionality factor. This is another episode that we did about important decisions. And it seems to me that you spent a lot of time in that quadrant of the important but not urgent. So that kind of deliberate thinking and planning. You're not just going out, shooting something and then throwing it on your website and moving on. You're actually thinking, okay, how am I going to best get my work out into the world? You know, what are those kind of, again, that boring but important stuff that you have to do in a business to build and to grow? Yeah, absolutely. Although I am creative, I do really enjoy the business side of it. I, it's a challenge and I find it exciting to a certain degree. And so I like to wear both hats and I am very intentional out of it. And uh, whenever people tell me I'm lucky for certain um, opportunities, I tell them it's not about luck at all. You know, like I've made my own luck. Everything's been very intentional. Yeah, I think that's really important. It doesn't have anything to do with luck. I've made all my own opportunities. I completely agree with you. And I think luck is kind of like a, a cop out that people use to maybe explain away their lack of success themselves. You know, I, I was listening to your podcast and it, it made me think about in regards to creativity and, and success, like what's more important, good decision-making or talent? And I was, I thought about this a lot and I think it's good decision-making because, you know, you could be super talented, but unless you know how to strategize and get your work out there, then no one's going to know. And then does it really even matter if no one sees your work? I'm sure a lot of people have opinions on that, but that's my opinion. Yeah, I would say that the people that I know who are the most successful are both talented, but also very deliberate and structured. And, you know, there are always the exceptions to anything, but I think overall you need both. You can't just rely on being great at something. Yeah, absolutely. Now let's move to the, the latest chapter, Mad Gene Media and your work as a multidisciplinary artist rather than a photographer. Yeah. Oh, man, this has probably been the most exciting part of my career. So this goes back and, and you know, your questions really made me think about uh, kind of the origins um, and, and how it's all happened. I think this goes back to the lesson that my mom taught me about really just p pursuing things that I was interested in on, on what I liked. Um, so I like taking photographs, but I consider it to be just like a tool in my tool belt. It's just a storytelling tool. And there are other things that I'm good at. So I've always really liked writing. I like interviewing. I'm really interested in people. Um, I love the theater. I grew up doing a, a lot of like music and theater and everything like that. So I have, you know, alongside my photography, been pursuing these other interests for a while. And I can remember another photographer reached out to me and uh, 
you know, and he was like, but where is this all going? And it, it was a little scary because I didn't know exactly where it was all going, but I trusted in the process that I was pursuing my passions and that they would all meet up. And as like that's actually happened, it's made me feel really powerful because like I had this uh, strong intuition again that that this was the, the direction for me uh, and that I should pursue these passions. And eventually uh, at some stage they would all coincide and and kind of mesh well for my career. But, you know, there was definitely moments of self-doubt when I had other photographers that I considered to be kind of like equal in on talent or ability who were following a more conventional path, like getting agents and like shooting larger campaigns and everything like that. And here I was like taking this like really um, non-traditional road to my career, but you know, it's really worked. My, my project that I did the list, I was a photography project, uh, which I adapted for theater. And then it was through that uh, theater show when I reached out to Vera Lind and she pitched me this idea of turning the list into a podcast, which we've gone on to sell um, to a production company. And it's in this very annoying stagnant stage with the production company, but the contact with Olvera Lind has like really changed my career. And we have a beautiful studio space and uh, a team now of people that I can use as my resource to help me develop my projects where like this badass group of like women making things and and it's completely yeah it's it's just changed my entire career it's so positive I'm just like so happy and fulfilled and and feel like I can really like take things to the next level and it sounds like you can also relax a little bit hopefully with the the practical side like now you can just be a creative yeah exactly because it is really hard uh, having to try and do everything and, and it does detract from your creativity. And, and, and also, like, there are people that are better at those things. So now, like, you know, I have a producer and, and that's what she does solely. So, and she's much better at that than I could ever be. So I can just focus on, on the art and then she finds a way to put it out into the world, which is, I, I can't tell you, like, how great that feels. So uh, even with, I've written a TV show and when we put together the pitch deck, I do all the photography um, for the pitch deck. And we do these like big elaborate photo shoots. And we use that as like kind of the basis to create this like visual world for the story we're trying to tell. Yeah, it's, you know, it's been kind of like a, a long winding journey, but I had trust in the, in, the, in the process that it would all come together at some stage. I'm so excited to see, you know, the next 10, the next 20, the next 30 years. Um, now I feel like it's kind of like the exponential stage. So watch this space. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really excited too. That's kind of a nice point, I think, to kind of wrap up and, you know, think about all those people who are Kira at 17 or 23. What what advice do you have for them? I think that you have to be brave. Um, you have to be really honest with yourself as well about how hard you're prepared to work. And then you have to be brave and stick it out. I think so many people give up just before the finishing line. So you have to have self-belief and you just have to keep going. And where can people find out more about Kira Cheers and her, her projects? I mean, you can go to my website, kiracheers.com, but I probably recommend following me on Instagram. That's I kind of use it like a, a newsletter and, and have like real-time updates about my work and even my process and how I'm developing my projects along the way. So you can find me on Instagram at Kira Cheers. Perfect. 
Well, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this kind of little trip down memory lane. And I think it is really useful to dissect the creative mind. So um, I found it inspiring. And I'm hopefully some people out there with side hustles might use it to take the leap. But thank you so much for reflecting with us. Yeah, Tessa, it was an honor. I think the podcast fantastic. So yeah, really happy to share. But I'll Well, that was a fascinating story. It was great to hear from Kira. I think one thing that jumped out at me, Tessa, and there was a lot of things to take out of this one, uh, but one thing was just the impact of parents on shaping her. You know, she talks about her parents, and we both obviously have have children of our own. We all, uh, I mean, we all have parents, so we it's all have parents. A very relevant <laughs> thing to reflect on. Correct, um, and to think about the fact that her mother, who had those insights into the limits of secondary education, and the you know how artificial it is sometimes to make these career decisions when you're young and you're not sure what you're doing. So she was very pragmatic, but her father, who was the dream big person, as Kira described it, I thought that was really inspiring to see the way her parents uh, helped launch her uh, into the things that she's done. And we've reflected on our own um, fathers in particular in a previous um, episode. And I think parents do have such a huge impact on our approach to work, to decision making. So it's it's a good thing to actually stop and and think about and think what what is being influenced by my parents right now? Is it a lesson you want to learn? Or do you maybe want to say, oh, that's not actually my approach. I'm going to change things. Yes, definitely. That kind of reflection, I think, is is really valuable. So I really like, too, there was this balance uh, of pragmatism and idealism in the way that she's approached things, that she said, look, yeah, I, I want to be successful artistically, but there's a financial element, too. I want to be able to earn a living doing my work. Yeah, I thought that was uh, very curious, wasn't it? Because you think of artists just being like, no, it's it's just putting beauty into the world. <laughs> All I want to do is, you know, yeah. is to create things. Yeah. But for her, it was like, no, I need to be able to make an income from this. Otherwise, I'm a hobbyist. You yeah. know, if I'm going to be a professional, if this is going to be my career, I have to be able to draw a decent income. That's right. Uh, I also liked uh, her point about intentional decision-making, that throughout, you know, she had a really clear end goal and – all of these steps were all working towards that end goal and that she did have a really strong deliberateness in the way that she approached decision-making. Absolutely. Yeah, so what did you think about her comments about intuition? I found that that was fascinating. Yeah, it was quite a unique approach. And we actually talked about intuition quite a lot uh, in season one as a a way of decision-making that comes from expertise. Um, So it's not an airy-fairy thing. It basically is when you have that expertise, your subconscious is doing the work, which is, you know, what we think of as intuition. Yeah, I feel that she almost redefined it for me. I'm going to really think about this a lot more, but this idea of being very attuned to the environment around her and she used the analogy of a jigsaw puzzle she said you know life and decision making is a bit like putting together the pieces of a puzzle and she would she said that sometimes she would see something that has happened and she would see that's important it's almost saying that's going to be a piece of the puzzle I can't do anything with it just yet but I've paid attention to it and then I'll wait and see uh, the other pieces come together and and to the point at which she's ready then to make a decision. And the decision became so easily, didn't it? Because yeah. at that point, all roads pointed in this direction. It was so clear to her that this is what she had to do, that it wasn't even an agonizing thing to drop her business, pick up her life and move countries because, you know, she'd come to that point through those pieces of the puzzles coming together. Yeah, 
I don't think we're even going to talk about the passion side of things because it's come up in every episode. Um, but obviously you do need that passion to slog at things, to work hard, to be successful. Yeah, I think the only thing I'd add to that is she said, pursuing the things that you love and the things you're good at. So there was a little bit of an element of identifying, yeah, a, a passion, but an informed passion. Mm, that's yeah. very true. You do actually have to have skills in the yeah. things you're passionate <laughs> about. Right. I might be passionate about painting, but I'm not going to make any money out of it. No. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that um, really jumped out to me, and I didn't think that this was going to be something that she sort of put so much time into as an artist, is this uh, idea of the planning, the urgent, important matrix that uh, Stephen Covey has put out. She's really spent a lot of time focusing on the quadrant that is important but non-urgent tasks. And this is where most people don't spend a lot of time because they're kind of the boring things. Yeah, and no one's demanding it usually. Exactly. It has to be very self-driven. But it's also the quadrant that pays dividends. And I think her story about the article that went viral was such a great example of that, that she could have just done an exhibition, good work, finished, I got some good feedback. But no, she deliberately thought about how am I going to share this? How am I going to get this out to a wider audience? And then had this huge success. Again, thinking about artists, you know, the idea that this this false image that an artist is just delivering these great artworks and regardless of what happens, but there's a deliberate uh, element to this, the element of research and doing the hard work to say, okay, well, how can I really make an impact with mm. this? So that and was I, impressive. And I think that separates the hobbyist from the professional as well. Yeah. That, you know, as a hobbyist, you might be happy just creating things and, you know, get people telling you that, that it's great and knowing that you're doing a great job. But to actually be a professional and to make it a business, you do actually have to spend a lot of time in that planning area. Yeah. And that's probably a good segue into that. Perhaps another point, that element of doing that research, doing that thinking, but then at some point saying, okay, now I have to do something with that. And uh, Kira demonstrated a willingness to take risks. Yes. Yeah. Her ability to take risks, I think, is very impressive. She's done it over and over again. And as a friend, it's actually a bit nerve wracking sometimes (laughs) because you see her in a situation where she's comfortable, she's doing really well, and then she goes and deliberately puts herself in an area where financially she might be very unstable, she has to build herself up from scratch again. So it's, it's very, you know, you worry <laughs> for her, but I sh- needlessly, because I know that she will be successful. Yeah. But I think it's a really good, good point, is that she deliberately takes risks that will help her grow personally and professionally, because she knows that she wouldn't be happy just staying at her current, you know, level of creative outlet or success. And maybe what she revealed in that interview um, will ease your concerns going forward because that that whole jigsaw puzzle approach, it might seem like, why is she doing this? But she's mm. probably picked up a number of cues over time to say, okay, now there is this is the time to move and do something different. So Tess, then what, what would you take away as your key um, messages from, from your chat with Kira? Yeah, that urgent, important matrix really is it. So spending time thinking about the things that are not urgent, but are really important. So whether it's your personal or professional life, that you've really got to spend time here and you've got to give yourself the time to be deliberate, to plan and to think about what's going to take you to that next level. Yeah. And there's a whole range of things, depending on the role that you're in, that could be skills development, you know, professional development. And that might not be demanded of you because you might be competent enough to do your job. 
But as you say, it could take you to that next level. So that exploration work, that thinking about, is there a different way to do things? Uh, Investing in people and and developing other people is another thing that I often think of in that space. So absolutely. For me, the big takeaway, I've already mentioned it, is that jigsaw puzzle view of intuition. I love it. I think that's a really uh, great way to consider decision-making, to say, well, what are the different pieces of the puzzle and what picture is forming here as I look at those pieces? So that was, I thought that was really helpful. Thanks for joining us in today's episode. Who have we got to listen to next week, Ken? I'm excited about this. I'm excited about all our episodes, Tessa, as you know, but I'm excited about this one because we're talking with a school principal who was formerly a police detective uh, and so has worked very different jobs, had to make the decisions to move between those jobs, but who talks about the transferability of skills from one profession to another, but is also inspirational when, uh, when they chat about their work in uh, their school. So I think you'll really enjoy it. No, I can't wait. Now, if you've enjoyed today's episode, make sure to subscribe and follow the show and you can find us on all good podcast providers Um, and come and visit us at goodbetterright.com.au and please tell your friends about us too. We'd love to meet them too.